2 Corinthians chapter 9. Which is one of those crazy mornings, isn't it? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So we are in uh, this, this third and last part of radical generosity this morning, looking at generosity, this topic of generosity one last time. And, you know, like I've said, I, I understand that Baltimoreans are very leery when it comes to the subject of money, especially when it comes to giving money away or resources or your time or whatever that may be. And uh, so we kind of approach it, approach it cautiously. But at the same time, it is a... Uh, it's, it would almost be foolish of us to pretend like it doesn't exist, like the money doesn't exist. And, I mean, a lot of our problems have to do with money. You know, I, I know because you tell me your problems, and half the time they're about money or worry and stress, and it revolves around money, different things. And, uh, and so it's there. You know, it's a real part of our lives. It's a very big part of our lives. And so we're kind of addressing it head on and saying, you know, what is, what is stuff? What is money? What are things? And... And what does generosity mean? And, and I think we live in a culture, too, that wants to be generous in some ways, but doesn't really quite know how uh, to be generous. I, I found this great poem. There's a lot of, a lot of great artists, uh, talented artists in, in our mainstream culture today. And, and here's a great, uh, it's actually a song, and I'm going to read it as a poem. It's really profound and deep. And uh, just kind of like sit back. I mean, just kind of pretend we're in like this little poetry reading thing. And I'm going to read this to you, and you can kind of go like this afterwards. Or is that what they do? Because I do. They really do this at poetry. Yeah. Do they really? That's awesome. So here it is. Um, I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad. Oh. <laughs> hey. uh, yeah, I would have a show like Oprah. I would be the host of Everyday Christmas. Give Travi. Who's Travi? Is that the singer? Travi. Give Travi a wish list. I'd probably pull an Angelina and Brad Pitt and adopt a bunch of babies that ain't never had stuff. <laughs> Give away a few Mercedes, like, here, lady, have this. Uh, and last but not least, grant somebody their last wish. It's been a couple of months since I've single, so you can call me Travi Claus, minus the ho-ho. Get it? Hee-hee. <laughs> I'd probably visit where Katrina hit. And darned sure, do a lot more than FEMA did. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, can't forget about me, stupid. Everywhere I go, I'm going to have my own theme song. <laughs> theme music. I actually read that last word wrong. And, uh, you know, so, like, here's, I mean, doesn't that, like, yeah, thanks. That, those lyrics, that song, doesn't it kind of, like, sum up, though, Maybe the mindset of, of our world, of our culture, of like, man, like, I really would love to be able to do a lot. I'd love to be able to go where Katrina hit, you know, and do more than FEMA. And I would love to be able to give a lot away and stuff. But the problem is, is I'm not a billionaire, right? If I was a billionaire, I would do a lot with my money. I'd be like Oprah, you know? But I'm not a billionaire. And so I'm relegated to, to just simply some lame existence you know, where I, I don't make much change in the world. And I think, and this is where, this, this is what we're going to kind of head to, toward and talk about today, and I think this is something that marks the, the, the Jesus movement, if you would, is that Jesus people have historically and always been people who, who are actually fairly normal people, sometimes wealthy, but not always, most of the time, more often than not, uh, poor throughout history. 
Yet they've done radically amazing things with what they have, with the resources. And, uh, and it really kind of confronts sort of this, this, uh, this mindset and this belief that, that we have to have a lot in order to be able to do a lot, right? So that's kind of what we're diving into. Um, we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 one last time this morning. And uh, there's something in here that I believe is, uh, is, is just really huge. It can really transform the way we think about generosity, the way we the way we uh, think about this whole subject. But at the same time, I think it's easy to miss. So we're going to dive into it and dig into it a little bit here uh, over the next couple of minutes. So if you're with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're finishing up the chapter this morning, starting with verse 12. And before I read, by the way, uh, I want to introduce my friends Luke and Megan here. They're from the eastern shore of Maryland. They were youth leaders of ours for five years when I was a youth pastor before I before we moved here. So they've been a big part of my own spiritual development and ministry, and it's good to have them with us today. And, and, uh, and back in, on, in, uh, May, on May 1st, I started growing a beard, and I was growing one with Luke. We were going to grow a beard for a year, and two months into it, I cut mine off. And uh, <laughs> I, yeah, it's faithful to the call. You know? <laughs> It's beautiful. It's glorious. Is it, I don't think there's any other way to describe it, but glorious. And uh, I just want to really take a moment and honor Luke's beard. So seven months in, right? Almost. Almost seven months. Seven months, December first. Just have a little anniversary. All right. <laughs> chapter uh, chapter nine, verse twelve. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is, it is also overflowing into many expressions of thanks to God. And a little context here that we just have to keep in mind is what's going on is Paul is uh, essentially raising money and taking an offering for the struggling Jerusalem church where there's, there's been a famine. Uh, so it's famine relief. It's providing for the church. It's providing for the needs. It's providing for the ministry. Just an offering in general to go to the, to the believers in Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and, uh, what he's saying here is, is the gifts that you're giving, the generosity that you're sowing here is not only uh, supplying the needs. It's not only meeting needs. Meeting needs for the sake of meeting needs is one thing. I mean, it's not a bad thing to meet needs just for the sake of meeting needs. You know, if somebody's hungry and so you feed them just for the sake of feeding them, that's completely fine. But what we're seeing here, what's going on in, in Corinthians and in the early church is actually something much more than meeting needs just for the sake of meeting needs. And I would say this, radical generosity, as we're sort of defining it here as a community, is more than just meeting needs for the sake of meeting needs. Um, there's a couple elements to generosity that we've sort of been working through. There's the why. Why be generous? You know, what, what are the needs out there? Why, what, what do we have? Why, why should we be generous people? What's the point? There's, there's the how. How do we be generous? How do we know that if we're generous? Last week we talked about setting aside a sum, which is just an easy thing for us all to do. Like, I'm just going to take a sum of my income, I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to use that to be generous, to give. Uh, so how do we be generous, generous? But then the third thing, and this is really where we're starting today, is the result of generosity. What does generosity result in? And so meeting needs then for Paul, as he's talking to the Corinthians here, meeting needs is almost a sub-point to the point of generosity. And the, the point, the end goal of generosity is this. It's that people praise God. You're, you're, you're giving 
your meeting needs, but your, your gifts, he says, are also welling up uh, in, in many expressions of thanks to God. Many expressions of thanks to God. And then he reiterates it in verse 13. He says, because of the service by which you have proved yourself, in verse 13, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Because of what you're doing. You've got to understand this. Because of what you're doing. There's something much bigger happening here. And this isn't giving with strings attached or anything like that. This is just a natural outcome of a generous lifestyle and a generous person. Because of what you're doing, because of your generosity, people are actually being drawn to God. Like, do you notice that they're not being drawn so much to you? Like, their hearts are maybe going out to you and they're thankful to you, but they're not glorifying you. They're not, they're not praising you. What's happening is like this real spiritually dynamic thing is beginning to happen and people, more and more people are actually being drawn to God as a result of your generosity. And again, like, I think this is so important to understand that this, isn't, that this doesn't mean it's giving with strings attached. It's not like, hey, here's a, uh, here's a sandwich and, by the way, a gospel track. You know, it's not like we're trying to, uh, what do you call it, uh, bait and hook, bait and hook, hook and bait, bait eat them, something, bait and switch. I know something about baiting fish. And uh, that's not what we're trying to do, um, hooking and baiting and switching and fishing. <laughs> But what, he, what it's saying is just, this is just simply the natural outcome of a generous lifestyle, of a generous person, of generous giving. The natural outcome is that people are drawn closer to God. They, they turn and they're like, wow, God is good. Like they begin to praise, praise God. And he's actually making a fairly bold statement here where he says, um, the service by which you've proved yourselves. And the bold statement that he's making is simply this, is, uh, how do how do I prove myself? Uh, how do I know that the gospel is is truly evident in my life? Not proving anything to you, but how do how do I know for myself that the gospel is evident in my life? And what he's saying here is it's generosity. We know that the gospel, we know that Christ is moving in us because of generosity. Or maybe another way to put it is we could if if we if we are not generous. It should cause us to pause and to stop and to think, is Christ really the center of my life? And so it's, uh, it's obedience that accompanies their confession of uh, the gospel. If it's real, um, if the gospel's really taken root in our life, generosity is just simply a natural byproduct. And then as we become generous people, the, the next natural byproduct is that people are drawn closer to God. It's interesting when we look across the globe and we sort of see what's happening in other areas, in Latin America, for instance. There was uh, two sociologists that uh, did some very major studies in uh, Latin America on the poor and their relationship with the church there. And what they were finding, and, and these were... Uh, Tim Keller pointed this out, by the way, but these were two uh, secular sociologists. Um, they they uh, were not advocating for church or Christianity or any, any kind of faith. They were just simply studying what was happening. And uh, what they found was that the poor in Latin America were flocking to churches. They're flooding into churches. 
and not just any church, but they're actually flooding into what, what they describe in, uh, in their studies as traditionally Protestant churches. And what they mean by that is, are churches that believe in the supernatural. They believe that miracles happen. They believe that, that God became flesh, and they believe that, that Christ died and rose again. Things like that, you know, like things that, that churches believed up until about 50 or 60 years ago. You know, like everybody, the Christian world believed that Jesus rose from the dead, for example. That, uh, that the gospel is, has a spiritual power and can actually transform us. You know, this is the kind of churches that people are, the poor are flooding into to, to the point where in Brazil, over 500,000 people uh, now consider themselves part of a traditionally Protestant church, a church which basically mean, uh, believes that, that the gospel can transform lives. Uh, over 30% of the population in Guatemala considers himself now part of a traditionally Protestant um, church. And so what the sociologists then, what they're studying here and what they're asking is, what is the why behind this? And this is what they've, what they've realized, uh, where they've sort of landed is, and this is a quote from the study, they said, classic Christianity, which is referring to, to the Christianity of you know, the last 2,000 years, what Christians have typically believed, over 2,000 years. Classic Christianity, they say, is radically empowering. Classic Christianity is radically empowering. And it's because statuses are elevated. Because when, when, when Christians come together, when we come together, when any church comes together, uh, race goes out the window, status goes out the window, econ uh, economic status, social status, all of that, those... Uh, dividers are removed. And we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. And then everything else is secondary to that. And so what the poor then are finding, and, and again, the, uh, these, these are countries where, where there's a lot of poverty. It's hard hit with poverty. And there's a lot of aid going to these countries. There's a lot of opportunities for the poor to find aid. And, this, and what the sociologists point out is, is, is that you know, they're living in this culture where there's a lot of aid, uh, help for the poor, but what, they ask, are the poor themselves choosing? What are the poor themselves choosing? And what the poor themselves are choosing are, are these churches. Why is that? Why is that? Historically, this has always been the case as well. Um, Look at uh, the next line in verse 13. He says, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And then the next line is this, and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. For your generosity in sharing with them, meaning the believers in Jerusalem, and with everybody else. People that aren't believers in Jerusalem. Everybody else. And Paul is living here in, uh, in the Roman Empire in which uh, there, there is a culture all across the empire. The empire is a very multi-ethnic empire. And the culture there is one in which people take care of their own. If, I have a, uh, if, if my tribe, if you would, um, has an issue, has a problem, has a famine, we, we help each other. But we don't cross barriers. We don't cross lines. We don't cross religious barriers. We don't cross ethnic barriers, barriers to help someone else. But what we're seeing here, what we're reading, is actually the beginning of what became an extremely, extraordinarily powerful movement all across the Roman Empire 
in which as much as they, they tried to stamp it out, they couldn't because they were taking care of not only their own. They were generous not only to each other, but they're generous to everyone. Everybody is benefiting from their presence. The whole world is being made a better place because of their presence. Uh, to the point where in 361 AD, Julian uh, became emperor of Rome. And uh, he, Ju- Julian hated Christianity. He, he hated the Christians. He called the Christians the Galileans because he wanted to point out their lowly beginnings, these, these crazy Galileans. And, uh, uh, and he, he, he was working very hard to stamp out Christianity. Uh, he was known as Julian the, the Apostate because of that. Uh, he, he realized that the violent techniques that had been used, used in the past to stamp out Christianity were not working anymore. And actually, it was, for some reason, the, the Christian movement was, was gaining in speed and gaining in popularity during the violent sort of crusades and, and what have you. And so what he tried to do was sort of maybe more of a nonviolent approach. And he said, okay, we're not going to allow Christians to have positions of power, of prestige, in, in any sort of government position. And uh, just taking away all of their rights and all of their privileges. And in his outrage, because what, what he saw was like, he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't stop this Christian movement. It, it was essentially making the pagans look bad. And in his outrage, this is what he said. Julian the Emperor, he says this. The, these impious Galileans, these crazy Galileans, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. What an outrage. <laughs> I can't do anything about them. You know, everybody's flocking to them because they're not only just taking care of their own, they're taking care of my people. They're taking care of our people. And, and as a result, and again, it's not strings attached, it's not handing a gospel track with a cup of water, but this is just a natural result as, as people are living outside of themselves and they're living these radically generous lives. More and more people are just turning and, and, and praising God. That's a natural result. How can you not? 20 years or so after the last apostle died, so this is a, after John, John the Apostle died, an extremely old document was written. Uh, we don't know who the author was, and uh, all we know is that it was written to a guy named Diagnetus. Have you ever heard of this, the, the letter to Diagnetus? If you haven't read it, like Google it this afternoon and get on. It's kind of a long, a long letter. It's it's beautiful. It's it's an amazing, ancient ancient letter. But Diognetus was uh, we don't know anything about him other than the fact that he was not a believer. And so there is somebody who we don't know. Somebody was writing to a guy named Diognetus, and he was trying to explain in this letter this movement, if you would this. The, these people who are springing up around the person of Jesus. And again, this is only 20 years after the, uh, John, the gospel writer, died. He's trying to explain what's going on. He's trying to give, give an accurate account of, like, this is, this is what I see happening, and this is who these people are. And I want to read you just a portion of this letter to Diognetus. Um, he says this, For Christians are not differentiated from other people by country, language, or, cust- or customs. You see, they do not live in cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or have some peculiar lifestyle. That's very interesting, isn't it? 
that the early church, they weren't building their own cities. They weren't creating their own language, their own subculture, and, uh, and having some weird lifestyle. Uh, he says they live in both Greek and foreign cities, wherever chance uh, has put them. So they're just kind of like living wherever, they, wherever the chance puts them, just wherever they are. They follow local customs in clothing, food, and other aspects of life. So they pretty much do what everybody else does in the city. But, he says, at the same time, they demonstrate to us the wonderful and certainly unusual form of their own citizenship. And then he says this, they live in their own native lands, but as aliens, as foreigners. As citizens, they share all things with others, but, like aliens, suffer all things. Every foreign country is to them their own native country. And every native land as a foreign country. They marry and have children just like everyone else. But they do not kill unwanted babies. They, share a, uh, they offer a shared table, but not a shared bed. They are at present in the flesh but they do not live according to the flesh. They are passing their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the appointed laws and go beyond the laws in their own lives. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and gain life. They are poor and yet make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. Isn't that phenomenal? That's the birth of the movement that 2000, later, 2,000 years later we're still a part of. Um, a couple things I just want to point out from here, and there's a lot going on here, and this is actually just a very small piece of this letter. That's why you need to Google it this afternoon and read it. But a couple, couple key things I want to point out, and I don't have time to like elaborate on all of them, but one... Uh, they, they live in their own lands as foreigners. And then he says, but every other land to them, every other foreign country is as their native land. So what, what this guy is pointing out is that there is a complete absence of racism among the early Christians. Complete absence of racism. No classism. They're not, they don't, they're not driven by ethnic barriers. It's like I, like I said, they, they, they're coming together first and foremost as people of Jesus, second race, class, whatever. Uh, he says they, they don't kill their unwanted babies. And to get a better understanding into that, in the first century culture, unwanted babies, after they're born, if you didn't want them, you can kill them, especially females. A lot of females were thrown in, thrown in the water. Uh, babies that were born with defects, you could leave them out in, in the cold and let them die. And so they have this like really unusual for, uh, belief in, like, in, in life. In, and not just the life of their own, but then as he goes on, it's like the life of everybody. Even people that aren't part of them. They, they, they believe in, in life. Uh, they, they share their table with all. So everybody can come to their table. There's always food on the table. Somebody's always cooking in the kitchen, and the door's always open, and you can come in, and you, 
you can sit with us and you can eat with us. So it's like, on one hand, they're extremely generous and they share, they share their table with the best of them, but they don't share everything. And isn't that interesting? Because I was actually thinking the other day, I was thinking like, is there anything as believers that we shouldn't share? <laughs> and, uh, and it, it I, I just kind of like left that thought right there. I didn't really think about it too much. And then I was reading this, and I was like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. They share their table with all, but they share their bed with none. They, they have an uh, unusually high view of sex. And in the first century culture, they saw sex as, as an appetite. And so if you are hungry, you eat. And if you want to have sex, you have sex. Um, much like our culture today, uh, if you want to have sex, have sex, share your bed with all, but limit who you share your table with, right? What we see in, in this first century culture is the absolute reverse of that. It's, it's the table is open to everyone, absolutely everyone. It doesn't matter if you're my friend. It doesn't matter if you're a, a relative or a stranger. Our table is open. Come and eat every night, every night of the week. But I won't share my bed with you. And then lastly, and this kind of like leads into this, they're, they're, they're poor, yet they make many rich. So they're people that, and again, uh, they're, not, they're not necessarily, uh, how do I say this? They're, they're, they're poor. They're just poor. They're poor people. And if it wasn't for Jesus, they would probably see their poverty as a problem, right? They would probably see the fact that they have to live simply as, as an issue, and they would do it begrudgingly. And they would just wish that they weren't poor. But what he's saying is that they're poor and they make everything, everybody else rich. And so that also means then that they, the, the resources that they do have, they're sharing. And everybody has abundance. Now, how great would it be if somebody were to say that about us? about you personally, about our church? Like, do people say that? Do people say, like, I mean, is this how somebody would describe us? That they share everything with everybody, that they, you know, their very presence there is just is making the world a better place, you know? I mean, I don't know. I, I hope that's where we're heading as a community, you know? In verses 14 and 15, if, if you look there with me, and in the prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. So the, the people that are in Jerusalem, that they're giving to, in their prayers, their hearts are going to go out to you. They're, they're having a change of heart towards you. Their hearts will go out to you because uh, of, <coughs> not of you, but of, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable indescribable gift. And here's, here's where we land on this, is simply this statement. Generosity changes the heart. Generosity, being a generous person, it changes the heart of the giver. Because here's the reality, is, is if we're not, let's just assume we're not a generous person. And everything we have, we, we, we don't want to share it with anybody. And we have this clenched fist one, our hand is getting tired because we're clenching our fists all the time, right? It's tire it really is tiring. It's kind of a cheesy example, but it really is just exhausting. 
to always be like worrying so much about what you have and making sure that you keep what you have. And then on the flip side, it's worrisome. It's like there's constant fear that we're going to lose it. There's constant fear that we're not going to have enough of it. And so we can never save enough because what if we need some more, right? We can never store up enough. So that we live in constant fear. We live in, in a constant state of, of, of worry. And so, it, so generosity then literally like changes, it changes the heart of the giver. All of a sudden our hands are now open. We're relaxed. You know, we can, we can enjoy God in a new way. We can begin to rely on God in a new way. We can actually uh, begin to, to develop a faith beyond ourselves and beyond what we can what we can make at our jobs and also it releases us from the worry you know we we talked a little bit last week about how god does bless the generous person and you know what and i really believe this i I say this with all sincerity i believe that for some of us the blessing that we need isn't more stuff what we need is to is, is to be freed from worry I mean, that's going to bring us more joy than any material thing you can imagine. Is to just be released of the worry. To just be freed up from the fear. It's exciting for me to be part of a community where I'm seeing generosity on a regular basis. I mean, even the last couple of weeks, the stories that I've been hearing from you guys on this subject of generosity has just been awesome, you know? Just to see how God... Uh, moves in hearts and, and, and people give and, and then they talk about how joyful it now is to be generous. Uh, I, I really believe that the garden is, I mean, we're developing not as a, uh, a closed-in community, but we're developing as a community which is looking outward and we're developing as a community which, something I said last week was at least, I, I, I do believe this of you guys is if you're not giving to anything, like if you are kind of like not a really generous person, at least you want to be. You see what I'm saying? Like at least there is this, you have this heart and you're like, man, I really want to be a generous person. And maybe for some of you, it's sort of like this, I I want to be a billionaire idea. And you do need to walk away from that mentality, like waiting, because the reality is, is you'll never, I mean, how hard is it to go visit where Katrina hit? Are you serious? You got to be a billionaire to go visit where Katrina hit? Anyways, stupid song. Really, it's stupid. Um, I wanted to read this quote here. This is uh, an example of uh, the generosity within the garden. Um, somebody, uh, I won't say the name, but they, they broke their collarbone. and um, <laughs> But I won't tell you who it was. Um, but this is what this person said. I guess what had, impressed, uh, had so impressed me was that the giving wasn't asked for specifically. It was prayed for, and I was surprised how freely they gave to me. This was giving from genuine love. It's generosity. It's radical generosity. You know, what's, what we see happening here is uh, in, in the Corinthian churches, they're not, they're not sitting around talking about giving. They're not having like forums on whether or not we should be generous people. And I mean, they're, uh, 
there is teaching on generosity for sure, which is what we're working through. But what they're doing is, is they're simply seeing a need and they're just being generous. And, and there is a danger, and let me say this really quick. There's a danger uh, that we uh, would fall into like a, a new sort of legalism, like a reverse kind of legalism. I mean, anything I think that we're passionate about could easily become legalistic for us. And what I mean by that is I've seen all sorts of legalism in my life, all sorts. I've been, I've been in the church for a long time. And uh, ever since I was, I was actually born in a parsonage. Can you believe that? In the church parsonage. That's where I was born. My mom popped me out in the church parsonage. Just trying to give you the visual. <laughs> and uh, so, um, anyways, I've seen all sorts of legalism. I've seen legalism where you're like looked down on because you don't dress right. You know, so God must not love you because you don't wear a tie to church. Or, you, don't, you know, how can you wear tennis shoes to church? You're going to dress like that in God's house? God doesn't, God's not really happy with you when you do that. But I've also seen legalism where you're looked down on because you drive a car to church instead of walking or riding a bike. You hater of the environment, you. How can you do that? And so it's like God must not love you because you actually drove a car here. I've seen legalism on one hand where uh, uh, the organ is, I don't know, what is it about an organ in like some churches? <laughs> Like, organs are serious business in some churches. And, you know, the organ w wasn't played this morning. Why? Can somebody please tell me why the organ wasn't played this morning? Are we moving away from the organ? <laughs> Pretty soon you're going to replace it with something else, like a keyboard? <laughs> but I've also seen legalism, on the other hand, where if, if you don't live in a commune with other people, then you must not really love Jesus. If you're not living in intentional community with people, then you must not really love Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Like, we can slide into legalism in, in any form, on any front. And, and here's the reality is, is if we're giving, if we're becoming a generous person with our resources, with our time, with our money, with our house, whatever that is, if we're doing it to win God's approval, don't be generous. Like, that's the wrong reason to be generous. Why? Because God's already approved you through Christ. He's already happy with you because of Christ. We're not doing it for God's approval. We're not doing it so God will give us a cosmic thumbs up. And we're certainly not doing it for man's approval. I mean, if we're doing it just because we feel pressured into doing it. You know, Paul is so careful. We've talked about this over the last three weeks. He's so careful to not pressure them. He's so careful to say, you know, like, I'm not telling you what to do. This is... I mean, this has got to be from your heart. This has got to be driven from your spirit. If you're doing it for God's approval, forget it. Like, don't, don't, don't be generous. You know, I mean, that's the wrong reason. Don't do it for man's approval, you know? If you're doing it because you don't want people to look down on you for not being generous, don't do it. Like, that's completely missing the point. The whole point of being generous is about the gospel, it's about the good news. First and foremost, the fact that we've been transformed as, as, as beings. And we now see things in a whole new way. But, but then also, it's, uh, it's then that others may be transformed as well. That others may praise God as well. We, uh, as a community, because of, because of your generosity, 
we were able to uh, buy groceries for a family as a church a couple months ago. And uh, the family came to the garden one Sunday, and that was it. And that's fine, because, again, we're not giving with strength attached, and we didn't even tell them to come. But they came. And the Sunday they were, there, they were here, the nine-year-old daughter filled out a card, and on it she wrote, it said, I came with, and she wrote uh, an open heart and, and uh, ears to listen. And then she checks the box and says, I've committed my life to Christ. And, uh, man, like, isn't that worth any kind of generosity? Just for a nine-year-old to come in and to be able to experience the good news of Jesus? Um, we uh, rent out this rec center because of your generosity. You guys know Miss Dolores? Uh, she, Miss Dolores just walked in here one Sunday. And uh, 78 years, she's, she's lived in the community, grown up here. Her, her uh, second cousin is Thurgood Marshall. Um, she's got a lot of family around here. And, she, and then we start this thing in this community center. We run it out. We do, this, we do our little thing. And she walks in. And when Miss Dolores walked in, I figured, you know, she would probably walk back out. <laughs> she saw this ragtag group of people like, what in the world is this? Uh, but Miss Dolores comes, and she falls in love with Christ in a new way, and she commits her life to Christ. And she, like, every Sunday she walks out of here, and she's like, man, I just love this. I love, love these people. And, and, and then uh, Miss Dolores is going to move. And so garden people go to her house, and they give up their time, and they help her pack up 78 years of, of life. And they help her move, just this, this act of generosity. And now Miss Dolores, she's living in Randallstown, and she has a hip problem. And she, can't, she said she can't go anywhere, but she can't wait to come back and, and see us. But we have our first shut-in. Isn't that awesome? I don't know if you guys know what shut-ins are. But the church I grew up in, had, we had a, a wall of shut-ins. Like all their pictures, all of our shut-ins. So anyways, we have a shut-in. <laughs> But why is that awesome? I mean, it's like, because, because we choose to extend ourselves. We meet people. We, we, we introduce people to Christ in a fresh way. We introduce people to a community that, that loves, a community that, that can truly care for people and, and walk through them uh, as, they, as they make life changes, even. Um, how do you think we painted this rec center? This rec center was painted on your dime. <laughs> largely because of your generosity. <clears throat> we, we took a rec center and said, you know, let's, uh, let's, let's paint it. And so we brought in teams, and they brought some money with them, and I brought Vince with me, <laughs> and we painted a rec center. You know, what, what is that? That's generosity. That's giving of ourselves for the benefit of someone else. Another, another family that uh, we, we continue to help out, I got a, got a note from uh, the parent in the family. It was just this beautiful note written, written to the garden, and thank you so much for your generosity. But why do we give? Why, why are we generous people? I mean, it's, it's a multi-layered sort of answer, but on one hand, we, you can meet needs when you can be generous. You know, when you think about 
Think about the billionaire idea. Man, if I was a billionaire, this is what I could do. The reality is, is most of us will never be billionaires. But does that mean that we cannot be generous people? Does that mean that we cannot transform the world with our generosity? It would be, if, if we say, if our answer to that is no, and we say, you know what, like, I believe it's completely unreasonable to ask me to be a generous person. I mean, on one hand, I want to, let me point out verse 13 again. Why, how are they giving? How are they, why are they giving? He says it's the obedience that company, accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. It's because of the confession of the gospel of Christ. You're then a generous person. And so I think there's kind of two ways we can go with this is, on one hand, if you say, that's unreasonable to be a generous person. Like, I don't want to set aside a sum. I don't want to give. I, don't want, I just want everything to be about me. Then we have to look inward and say, do we really get the gospel? And uh, it's very possible that some here today don't really get the gospel. And so if you, if you feel like it's unreasonable to be generous, don't be generous. And I really say that. Like, don't feel like you have to be generous. Generous. Look, all I, all I ask is that you continue to look at Christ, continue to explore Christ. That's, that's the core. That's what, that's what makes the difference. Anything else would just be behavioral modification. But then on the other hand is, is, is this, is you may say, um, I, it, it's reasonable to be generous. I could see that. I just can't for various reasons, because of bills, because of debts, whatever it might be. And on one hand, like if you had a, let's, let's take, say, 10%, for instance. If you had a 10% reduction in your income, what would you do? You would make do, right? You wouldn't die. You wouldn't starve. You would just, you would say, okay, I've got a 10% reduction in my income. Now I've got to rethink what I'm buying, how I'm using my money. You would tighten some things up. And so really what radical generosity is saying, this is, this is I guess you can even put, say Christian generosity or Jesus kind of generosity, is this, is, is what if you give yourself a reduction of income now? Before it's, I mean, before that were to ever just naturally take place. What if you, what if you reduce your income now and then you get to be a philanthropist? Then you can, you can give like you've always wanted to give. And you can, you can actually go and visit where Katrina hit. You don't have to be a billionaire to do that. I mean, and, and if we say that's unreasonable, if we say, you know, that's, that's ridiculous, it would be as if, and Matt, I hope you don't mind me using you as an example here, but um, uh, last week I, I said that I can't buy a flat screen TV now, right? Because I've used that as, too, I've used that as an example too many times. And so I was like, I can't buy, buy a flat screen TV. Well, Matt had a flat screen TV in his house that he hasn't watched since, like, what, June? And he brought it over to my house yesterday and put it in my living room. <laughs> and I have a flat screen TV sitting in my living room now. <laughs> now, what if Matt were to bring that to me and he were to say, hey, here's a TV for you? Um, the only thing is, like, could I just come over maybe three or four times a month and watch, you know, I watch The Office. Do you watch The Office? Oh, you don't watch TV. <laughs> it's true. Um, let's just pretend you watch The Office. <laughs> Could I just come over on Thursday nights and watch The Office? It would be unreasonable for me to say, no, it's mine. You know, and like, I hold it like this, and I'm like kicking back. And I'm like, get out of my house. This is my TV. I can't share it with you. You can't have any of it, you know? 
That would be unreasonable, wouldn't it? Or what if somebody gave you a house? It's a very large house. And they said, hey, here, you can have this house. And it's, and it's, it's such a large house. Can I just, like, live in one room of it? And you'll never see me. I'll just, like, I'll kind of hang out in the back corner of the house. And you take the house and you're like, no, get away. This is my house. You can't have a room of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's unreasonable. And so what happens then is when we, when we have a gospel sort of transformation in our life and we begin to realize that, that everything we have is, is not our own. We're, we're like foreigners passing through. And that we have a different kind of inheritance awaiting us. When we begin to realize that, it changes the way we see everything. And to share some of it is not unreasonable. It's, it's actually the most reasonable thing to do. I wonder if, uh, as we kind of close here, just a couple of thoughts. I wonder if there is uh, someone here who's, who, you know, at the core, I mean, you know, simply because uh, all of this seems unreasonable to you. At the core, uh, that that um, you don't know Christ, and I and I want to just say this again: like I don't want anybody to, to to believe that generosity is something that we just need to do to make God happy with us. But I want to say this: like don't be generous if that's the case. Like you you're not being pressured to be generous. And I and I ask you know look inward. Explore the person of Christ some more. Talk to some folks and say, you know, I don't know if I really get the gospel. But then on the other hand, there might be somebody who's, who's been uh, clenching their fists for so long. And you're tired. You're, you're tired of the anxiety. You're tired of living with fear. You're tired of li- living with worry. And you're just simply to let go and just allow God to be God in your life. And to just relax and to just, just give God everything. And to allow then this worry which has just been crushing you for, for all of your life to just be released. And to, just, and, and to embrace, embrace God. Let's do this. Let's just take a, a moment where we can maybe look inward together as a, as a community. Um, and John, maybe if you could just come and kind of do your thing and play a little bit. I just want to, as we sort of end this uh, series on generosity, hopefully this is the beginning of generosity for many of us. Uh, but I do, I want to just look inward and ask ourselves, is, is the gospel taken root in our lives and has the gospel transformed <laughs> us? Are we praising God? And then, uh, if that answer is yes, the next question is, what, what is it that I'm holding on to? What, why, is, why is there so much worry in my life? Why is there so much fear in my life? Why can't I just simply allow God to be God in my life and to, and to take control of every aspect of my existence?